Welcome to Let's Thrive the Podcast, a place for holistic storytelling with none of the BS and a whole lot of fun. I'm your host, Emily Feichels, and my mission is to interview guests that inspire, educate, and empower you to live your best life. In these stories, you'll see a part of your own journey reflected in theirs and learn to grow from it. And with that said, let's thrive. Welcome back to Let's Thrive the Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Feichels. With the release of this episode, it is nearing the end of 2020, like real close, right on the edge, last day or two here. And that is just so odd to me. I mean, I'm sure you guys can relate where this has been the longest yet shortest year of my life. It's all just one big mystery that I don't really know how to solve, how to make sense of it at all. (laughs) Uh, And when I was thinking about that, you know, sitting down to record this intro, I actually wanted to share something that's been helping me in this time of sometimes pressure, overwhelm, etc. that can come with the whole new year in quotation things. So this is something that I heard on another podcast actually, Almost 30, which you all know I love, I adore them. Krista and Lindsay are the best and what they said really resonated with me and it was something I wanted to share as it's helped me with these feelings and you know, what they basically said is that we get to choose what a quote-unquote new year looks like to us and when that begins. So fundamentally, like this new year is just representative of a shift. And that could be a shift in a physical way, in a mental, emotional, mindset way, however you want it to be. And what they were specifying and really driving in on is that this shift can take place whenever we choose for it to or whenever life pushes it upon us. And I think for so many of us, we just see this, you know, like shifting of the calendar year, this January 1st as this, right, like quote unquote clean slate, or it's like a way to shift gears and it's a new year and all that jazz. And while that's great and while it may work for some, I also think there's a lot of us that might struggle with the feelings of pressure or overwhelm or anxiety that comes with putting so much on like one day, right? And what I you know, took from their message and what I've been reminding myself is that this new year, this day of from 2020 to 2021, like it doesn't have to mean anything unless you want it to. Like unless you want it to prompt shift, a shift or a change in your life, great. But if you don't, okay, like just it's any other time. We're shifting the calendar year. You'll have to remember to now write 2021 instead of 2020. And that's about it. Uh, It was just so refreshing to remove that pressure from the whole new year mentality you know it's just it's just a way to decide for yourself like whether you make change now or later or maybe you do choose to make it on january 1st who knows it's it's like a way of reclaiming your own choice your own self-power in a sense and it was also something that today's guest, Liv, and I were talking about before we actually even recorded the podcast because it's so relevant, especially in this field that we're both in, of wellness and recovery. You know, new year, new you mentality and all the diet culture shit that happens. Um, And I actually have an episode all about how to work through holidays and the new year, new you in quotation mentality. All of that is coming in the next episode, so stay tuned. But, um, you know, that was something that Liv and I both talked about because we are passionate about it. Uh, Today's episode with her, though, is actually like one step before all that. And it's 
really honing in on more specific topics that Liv is especially passionate about. Uh, you may know her as Liv Label Free on Instagram. And, you know, the way we met, and I think I shared this in the episode, but I can't remember. It's kind of funny. It was about two years ago. And we both signed on to this recovery, like eating disorder recovery program that a, another former podcast guest, Britt Berlin, was running at the time. It was like a support group, like a mindset group. It was really neat and interesting and actually opened my eyes up to what orthorexia was and that I was struggling with it. Anyway, <laughs> as I digress, I digress. Uh, Liv and I have both grown so much since we first met two years ago when we were starting that program. We were both struggling a lot with disordered eating and old thoughts and habits, and now, two years later, we're here. And so in this episode specifically, we take a look at the root cause of disordered eating tendencies from both of our experiences and knowledge of it both. We also discuss the mental and physical connection between our thoughts and habits and how we react and feel in the world. Uh, then we go into Liv's autism awareness and how, you know, being diagnosed with it, starting to learn about it, she was able to see how it manifested in eating disorder related actions and tendencies and thoughts. And so that was a very neat look into it and perfect for anyone else who is experiencing the same situation. Uh, for someone, maybe you have someone in your life with this, you know, with autism or with an eating disorder. Um, or overall, I think anyone who has become aware of the tie between our mental health and how that manifests in different ways, I think you'll really resonate with this. Um, and then there's just so much other good in there as usual, such as why we're naturally drawn to food as like a crutch when it comes to obsessive tendencies and habits and then into emotional eating and experiencing binges. There's just so much good in this. Um, I could talk with Liv for hours. So tune in, listen close, and let us know what resonated with you. We would love to connect and chat. Seriously, we love our communities and just being with you all in whatever way possible. So go ahead and share it on Instagram, share it with a friend, or just message us privately. We would love to chat. And if you're feeling especially grateful and appreciative, you can always leave a rate and review for the podcast. Definitely helps the show, tells me what I'm doing right or wrong, and... It's just a nice thing to do, you know? <laughs> so thank you all for listening. As always, let's connect. And remember, you can find Liv on Instagram at LivLabelFree. And I'm on there at Emily Feichels. Linked below, as always. So without further ado, let's begin. I wanted to start out by just giving like a bit of an introduction to you because we actually met through our mutual friend, the lovely Britt Berlin, who has been on this podcast before. I'm sure people have listened to her episode. Otherwise, I'll have it linked below. And we met through a course that she was doing. And for me, the course really like opened my eyes up to all the little ways my eating disorder was still present yet hiding in my life, right? Like mm -hmm. all the little food fears or the orthorexia or like things that I right. thought weren't even an issue until like she opened my eyes to them. And so we met right. through that and we've just stayed friends ever since. And so it feels so Yay. amazing to finally have you on here and discuss our own journeys, our own stories with it all. Um, but yeah, so that's just sort of how we met, right? I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm honored like to be on this podcast now after just meeting through Brit, like, I don't know, was that two years ago now? Or yeah. Like that? Yeah. Um, and then I feel like we were both just in this really desperate place almost mm -hmm. because we didn't know kind of where we were at. Like you said, like Britt opened our eyes. Um, 
for to discovery kind of and like over these past two years it's been beautiful like watching each other and supporting each other as we have grown and evolved and continue to grow and evolve honestly oh a hundred percent like we're always discovering something new and then just like watching it you know like grow from the other uh you know and kind of on that note uh discovery that you've made rather recently and something that, you know, we discussed before that we wanted to talk about on this podcast was how you realized, was it, it was pretty recent, right? That you have like autism. Yeah. Well, um, honestly, it's been something that has been like said by therapists I've had and what, and like doctors, they've, it it has been like, Oh, does she have autism? Like they would Mm -hmm. ask my parents because I was like 15 at the time or um, but honestly, I was so in denial still about my eating disorder. I was in denial about everything. And I think also because um, there's this stereotype, you know, that autism means like this guy who's like socially awkward and doesn't understand humor and just sits in his closet and reads books about math all day. Um, like people think that that's what autism is. And I feel like it's very like kind of overlaps with the same stereotype that like eating disorders have you know like people think if someone says like oh I have an eating disorder it's like they imagine this like skeletal white female that thinks she's too fat and has to lose weight and that's someone with an eating disorder you know and even though the same with like how eating disorders like there's this spectrum and like disordered eating often doesn't manifest itself physically necessarily and I think that's the danger of like disordered eating and that's why people often go undiagnosed so so often because it doesn't manifest itself as what society thinks is an eating disorder. Um, and I think that definitely goes along with autism um, because there are like sub- subtle signs that you like an everyday person wouldn't see. Um, and especially in women, um, it's been very recent that like autism has been um, like a allowed in women I feel like not even like allowed I, I can't think of the word right now um but it's not it's not been seen in women before um so I think it's definitely something that you have to speak up about and like when you learn about it you really have to kind of stand your ground like this is something I struggle with and no matter what anyone else says like kind of just like really standing up for yourself in that point of view yeah I mean I love how you related that to eating disorders because it's so true, right? It's the Mm -hmm. stereotype stigmatized image in your head. And I face that with like my hep C diagnosis. Like there's so many ways that we all experience it one way or another, right? Whether it has to do with your financial situation or your home life, like we all have this stigma stereotype that the outside world can put on us. And I like, it's hard enough for anyone that's struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder to sort of face that or to, you know, it's not even like you have to prove you have it, but to even be listened, right. To even, yeah, to be heard. Yeah. To even be heard you, it's like, you have to prove outright prove that you like are struggling. And if it's not manifesting in the physical manners and it's like, how do you do that? Right. Like, how do you, how do you showcase like the mental and emotional turmoil you're going through? And so um, I love that you made that correlation and going back to like the autism piece, you said that it can be hard to like see, and there's not always like physical manifestations. Like what were some of the things that sort of like tipped you off to like, accept it? You know what I mean? Because it's one thing to have doctors say, or therapists or whoever say, this is it, but it's another thing Mm -hmm. like for you to accept it. So what sort of helped you in that process? 
Um, honestly, for me, I think it was this one. Well, my mom had all these different books on it, like that she had gotten and ordered like years ago, like also all these eating disorder books, like eating disorder toolkit for parents. And like when your child has autism, like all these books that she was like, I'm going to read this. I'm going to inform myself. But, you know, life gets in the way. Work gets in the way. A parent's divorce gets in the way. <laughs> and the books end up getting dusty on the shelves. And she was clearing out her room and I like noticed all those books and I just got pretty like intrigued. And I was, this was indeed like a couple months ago. So pretty recently. And I've just been, and I, that's been a huge part of my recovery. It's just shifting from this like closed, like isolation mindset to just being more open and being really open-minded to everything really. Um, and so I noticed these books and I was like, cause I still, something I still struggle with, like, I don't even want to say struggle, but deal with a lot is these certain behaviors that were part of my eating disorder, but they manifest themselves now, not with food and exercise, but in other ways, like being very clean and like not being able to deal with like when change, when, when change would plan, when plans would change, um, I would get very, very anxious. Um, and I, I couldn't understand where this was coming from because I thought like, uh, I thought that was only something that I had like when I was in my eating disorder. I was like, when when it would be from, oh, we're going out to dinner. Like all of a sudden I would get so, so anxious during my eating disorder. Um, so I thought that those two were connected. Like the eating disorder and the anxiety when things changed, I thought those were two, two were connected. Um, but more and more um, after my eating disorder and like also after this period of like, emptiness and like feeling very numb for a long time um I noticed these behaviors kind of starting to pop up in other areas of my life um so being very neat being very organized having a very hard time if I like didn't know an outcome of something or if there was no routine or um really no plans I just get very very anxious um so I kind of started like looking it up and just looking more into it and um, and I started reading some of the books about, on autism, uh, specifically girls with autism and women with autism, um, because there are like differences in how that manifests across women and men and just all genders. Um, and yeah, I really don't like to often say like, oh, this is how it is for women or this is how it is for men, because I think everyone is just so different. And um, it's just so much nuance to it more than people think. Um, yeah, and so I started reading this one book called Asper Girls. It's by Rudy Simone, and that focused on a specific um, Asperger syndrome, which is like now under the it's on the autistic spectrum, and it's I on I think it's not even called Asperger's anymore because they have just kind of grouped it under the umbrella term of autism. Um, but it was this woman, Rudy Simone, who who wrote a book about her own experience with Asperger's. Um, and I literally just recognized myself in everything. And that book like totally just kind of made me feel so seen. And now I know the word again that, um, that I was just trying to think of, but because of my bilingual um, background, because I speak Dutch and English, I will sometimes have a Dutch word in my head and not be able to think of the English word. And sometimes, it's the other way around too and that's very frustrating but <laughs> um I felt recognized you know um and I felt like I wasn't alone and 
that's I think that same feeling as when I like joined this Instagram community when I was struggling with disordered eating is like knowing that there are other people out there that deal with this too and her book really um what I like about her book a lot is that she portrays um like she she gives many people that she interviewed a, a voice in that book so you actually are not reading only her experience but the experience of several several women who who who, who deal with this um and yeah stuttering is like also I never understood like why I stuttered um but that's but I read in that book and I learned in that book that that's so so common trait of autism um okay so then I like felt less ashamed I feel like um because I was like again, I'm doing it, I'm, like, very socially awkward, because I just get so nervous um, in social situations, but anyways, back to your question of, like, noticing and realizing, like, what were the traits, it was, like, when I was reading that book, my whole, like, life, and my whole history of also everything, and, like, I think also how I got my eating disorder was basically just explained to me in that book, almost, it was, like, such self-discovery, because as a kid, when I was younger, I would my dad would tell me stories that like when I was three years old, we would be at the beach and I would just line up like all the sandals, like according to like their color. And the only two things I would draw as a kid were symmetrical rainbows and castles. Um, and so whenever we had that school, like draw something creative, like it was like, no, like I can all, like I remember having a fight with the teacher cause I was like, no, it has to be this. Um, and it was really those those things that um, also hearing those stories from my parents that made me realize that this really did start at a very young age. Um, and I've always been very attached to ritual, routine, having a very, very hard time with change. And when things did change or go unexpected, I would just get like panic attacks and I'd be overwhelmed. Um, and I think because this manifested itself as an eating disorder, I think, um, it was very hard to see that I had autism because people associated panic attacks with, oh, she's malnourished. Like, because panic attacks were one of the biggest symptoms of my, like, malnourishment was one of the most prevalent things that I had when I was very sick. I was like, now when I would get panic attacks, like, years later, I was like, wait, what? Like, I'm not malnourished. I was so, so confused. But like through learning about autism and its signs and symptoms, it just all made sense to me that my eating disorder was a manifestation of my autism and OCD. And it really, cause I just never understood when people would say like, oh, you have an eating disorder. Like you think you're too fat or something. And I was like, no. And again, that goes back to the stereotype. Um, but I think an eating disorder never has like a cause or, it's several, several factors. And it's most often just a manifestation of some other like issue in your life, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say real quick, like into this is that what you said before about like how you were able to look back and see that things started a lot earlier than you originally thought. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's so much, so often the case with disordered eating or eating disorders as well, because most of us, it's not like we can pinpoint the exact day our eating disorder or our right. disordered relationship began. But if you look back and you start peeling back the layers, like there's so much you can uncover from right. our childhood, from our past, whether that was from family or societal like influence on us. Right. There's so many ways like, you know, we come into this world and then we have all of these things like imprinted onto us. Right. And I think that 
part of the recovery process for any sort of addiction, any sort of, you know, issue that you're having, I think part of that process is looking back a bit, right. And like understanding where this started, because it's like, that's how you work through those mental and emotional blocks of, you know, did someone say this to you when you were a child? Did you see messaging about this? Did you have this told to you? Like, that's all part of like the stepping stone. And so that's just like, I love, you know, how your parents were able to pick up on those things that back then, maybe they just seemed like a little odd, you know, kids are odd. Yeah. They always are. <laughs> like I did plenty right, of right. odd shit, but like, right. it's only looking back later that you're like, oh yes. Okay. This makes sense. It's like putting the pieces of the puzzle together in a sense. Yeah. And what you said about um, like recovery and having to step back first, I think that's definitely a huge part of the puzzle, but I feel like it's not, I just want to put out there that it's not necessary mm-hmm. for recovery because um, what kept me sick for a very long time, and I think I wrote an Instagram question about this a little while back, was um, that therapists and doctors, they were always telling me, like, in order to, like, get better, you need to first figure out what caused it. But, I mean, I – and I started believing that, so I was like, so as long as I don't know what caused my eating disorder, I don't have to do anything about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but – and, like, finding out about this autism and stuff, like, this happened after the fact, like I am like three years well into recovery. And I only found out that I had autism like this year, you know. Um, so I, I definitely think um, it's very dependent on the person and just also your treatment course, obviously. Because um, for me, when it when I was like, rock bottom, like, I need to get better. That was pure out of desperation when I when I went to Carolina house, um, because it was just panic attacks every day you know it was not only dangerous for me but it was dangerous for my family as well Mm -hmm. um so I think yeah I just think it's very hard to say like what what the first step is in recovery because it looks so so different for everyone and um but I definitely agree with you what you said about like all the different factors because um when I was 11 that's also when my disordered eating started um that's also when my parents started just fighting like all the time and it started out as very small things but they're divorced now so (laughs) I think I don't have like the rest is history yeah um but I think as I'm pretty sure like we're both very highly sensitive people and I think a lot of people in the eating disorder community like wellness community are um and when you are so young like and your parents are fighting like you pick you pick up on it and I I almost would internalize their frustration and their stress and their anxiety. And um, I had no outlet, you know, because I couldn't talk to my parents because about their fighting, like, because they just defend themselves, you know. Um, And I was just so young. So it's not like you know what's happening. So um, I think that's where that switch happened from, like, manifesting my perfectionism and, like, ritual and routine and everything into like drawing and that kind of like kid kid stuff to food because people always ask like why why food why an eating disorder and honestly I don't think it's weird because like what's what's something you have to do every single day something that you can like easily control is food like it's not like I'm gonna say well now I'm never gonna go pee anymore or like I'm never gonna sleep anymore um but food is honestly so easy like to grasp or it's almost like a given, you know, a no brainer, like, well, what's something I can control every day, how much I eat, what I eat. 
Um, so I think that's also why eating disorders are so prevalent and common. And this con this concept that like eating disorders are quote unquote caused by like social media and thin models, like I don't believe that to be true at all because if it was a causal relationship, then everyone who would be exposed to the media would get an eating disorder. And that's not the case. Um, so like it's I said, like it depends on the individual. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like going back to before, right? Like if like looking back at your past and uncovering those layers can be part of recovery. Like it doesn't like you said, I'm, I'm like three years into recovery now and I'm still like having to go back and look at stuff in my past. And same with like the, yeah, like how media portrays women and all of those like external sources, like it's not like one individual thing causes an eating disorder. It's not a light switch that flips on and off, right? Right. It's little things that build up and accumulate over time. It's the constant exposure to parents fighting or the constant exposure to bullying at school or the constant, yeah. yeah, Or the constant exposure to those thin models all over everywhere. Like it's, it builds up over time until it builds into pretty much like a, it manifests, right. It builds into a actual thing like within us. And I think that, you know, what you were saying there about like that emotional piece, right. Like we, take so much in and we just take it in, take it in. And I think so many of us lack ways to express it safely. You know, like we're not in therapy in these years when eating disorders or disordered eating develop, most of us aren't at least. And even if we are, it can be like, it can still happen. And so I guess like on that note, when it comes to emotions and like that buildup inside of us, have you ever had that then create issues like with food for you? Like I've talked about this on the show before as well, but emotional eating was, huge for me. And I think that's another reason why people go to food as that control factor, because it's like you said, it's there with us every day. Um, it's easy to control. Like we learn to control it from when we're babies, right? Like our parents give us so much food and as babies, we're like, I'm only eating this much. (laughs) And then the rest, we like we control food from the day we are able to. And so, and then it has that emotional tie to it. And it's just like this perfect storm. So how have you like experienced that correlation between emotions and food? Like, was that ever an issue for you or something you had to work through? Yeah, um, definitely. And I think especially in recovery from like restrictive eating disorder, or like, mm-hmm. like orthorexia or anorexia. Or, um, yeah, I don't, I really am not a fan of labels. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Hence the name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Live label free. Rest- <laughs> restrictive, restrictive eating disorder, like saying you can or can't or having foods or food groups be off limits. Um, I think there's this very fine nuance between in recovery from restrictive eating and emotional eating. Um, because when I came out of my restrictive eating disorder period and I was quote unquote weight weight restored after Carolina House. Um, it was only a year later that I first in my life experienced what what someone would probably label now as a binge or overeating. And I had no idea what was happening. I would just like eat jars of Nutella on end. I'd eat jars of peanut butter. And every morning I would wake up and be like, okay, today's going to be a good day. You know, I'm going to eat only healthy. And the exact same thing would happen all over again. And as desperate as I was, along with I think many other people who will experience this after restrictive eating, I would look up like from, from anorexia or from orthorexia to binge eating disorder, or like, is this a thing? And I thought I was getting binge eating disorder. Um, but then again, there were these other books that I started reading and 
specifically um, uh, eating disorder recovery blogger named Tabitha Farrar. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard of her, um, but she really opened my eyes um, about the biological aspect of eating disorders that, and she makes some funny analogies like, say, uh, like Mr. and Mrs. Rat, um, they, uh, they, were not, they didn't have enough food for like weeks and weeks. And then all of a sudden they come to like these abundant lands where there's a ton of food. So Mr. Rat will eat all the food and like really like eat his brains out kind of thing. Um, and then she made this joke, like, would someone accuse Mr. Rat of um, having like a fight with Mrs. Rat? Or would he, could he just be hungry kind of thing? Um, and I just thought that was so, so interesting because we, we tend to, uh, those of us with restrictive eating disorders and coming out of that, we tend to immediately think we've like lost all control um, over food. Um, but I think honestly, it's, it's our body just telling us what we need. And when we, it's very scary because, you know, you're so used to controlling every bite that comes into your mouth. So when this like happens to you, you're, you think you've just lost it. Um, but I've also heard this analogy of like a pendulum swing. It's like, if you go one way of like not eating or cutting out food groups or cutting out foods, like the more and more you do that and the more obsessive you get about it, like the, the harder the, and further the pendulum will swing the other way. And that's like, give me all the food, like, because your body, your body will fight back. Um, and that's that whole like binge restrict cycle is thankfully now so like getting more recognized that binging isn't caused by lack of willpower or anything like that. It's just literally a biological mechanism telling you like, we need more food. And why do you grasp towards cookies and Nutella and just high density foods? It's because that's what your body needs. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's just very important to know that, um, that emotional eating doesn't necessarily have it's not necessarily emotional eating when you're overeating and recovery from an eating disorder. That could purely yes. be that you're coming, you're still coming out of that restriction. Yeah. It's a, it's all part of like the healing process. It's like, you can't skip over like the hard parts. And I think like one more thing I wanted to like point out was how, when you were giving that analogy, right. With like mm -hmm. the rats. Um, so often the act of a binge is, normalized right I mean right we can all have those moments where it was like super long day at school or long day at work or road trip or whatever it was and you're going like long hours of time without any food or with not enough food and then you get home you sit on the couch you've got your meal right like it's normalized right. or like the late night like pizza and you know get drunk and pizza and binge like <laughs> the act of like these binge eatings are so normalized like nowadays it's like growing up as kids as everything and I think that like plays into it as well because it's like it can be hard for people to even realize like what's happening unless you're like made aware of it right and then even then yeah. it's something that many of us have done multiple times in our life you know, like it might even become a habit now of like for some people where it's like um, you know, like they don't eat all day. So then that night they can drink and then literally, you know, like binge out on pizzas and all this stuff. Right. It, um, it's like saving the calories. On those yeah, like, like yeah. exactly. Yeah. Or it's unintentional. Like I, I know I shared this in a couple podcast episodes back, but when I started this new waitressing job here in Austin, our first weeks were so yeah. busy. Yeah. Like the one day 
I finished a 12 hour shift and like, I hadn't eaten anything and, you know, yet I'd probably walked miles in serving. And once, you know, that night, like I went home and, you know, whether I overate or it was a binge, whatever it was, like, it just reminded me in that moment of like, this is a human thing. It happens, right? Like, this is something mm-hmm. we've all done before. Um, I don't know. And that sort of helped me remember that, like, to, to keep out of that, like, shame spiral of the next day being like, oh, my God, what did I do? I'm horrible. Right. Like, no, like, I need to make up for it. Yeah, it's yeah. like, this is a human reaction, a human response to when your body is just hella hungry, and then it finally gets food and nourishment. Yeah, and just to, um, because I realized I never answered your initial question about emotional eating oh. before I gave that whole disclaimer about it doesn't have to be emotional eating. Um, but yeah, I what you're saying about like your waitressing job, um, honestly, because I recently moved, as you know, um, I found myself in the beginning, I was just kind of, I was so, so exhausted. And I was trying to achieve the same level of work. Um, along with moving everything and like along with building closets and cleaning and ordering things, um, getting washing machines, I don't even know, like, I was just, I was not prioritizing myself and my health, like I was setting my alarm and then literally sleeping through, oh my gosh, my AirPods are empty, they (laughs) oh my god, no worries, I can still hear you fine, okay, oh my god, my AirPods, they just like made that I hate that noise no no you're okay yeah like your audio still sounds perfectly fine okay cool if anything you might just have to like talk a bit louder since the mic from your computer will be farther away than like the airpods would be yeah other than that though it sounds clear and great so no worries okay awesome thank goodness I got a new macbook last year (laughs) like the the mic was like messed up and everything um uh, what was I saying about the, um, oh yeah, about moving and emotional eating. Um, I was just not prioritizing my mental health. Like I was just setting my alarm at like, today's another work day. And then on top of that, I'd pile like all the little tasks and um, fees and everything that come with moving that like I had no idea about even existed. Um, as we talked about before, that just this whole new like layer of responsibilities come come into your life when when you start living on your own for the first time. Um, So I just noticed that I wasn't prioritizing myself and I wasn't prioritizing rest um, at all. Like I was like, go, 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 work, work, work. Um, And then every night I would just like go towards food. And in the beginning I was like, is this me again, like falling back into old habits? Um, But then it's again, that awareness of like maybe, and then recognizing like, you know, I haven't been prioritizing myself. And food is a comfortable thing to turn to, you know, um, like, there's just so much shame around, like, turning to food for comfort, comfort, like, it's immediately labeled as, like, emotional eating, or, like, binge eating, but I'm, like, if food was not meant to be pleasurable, there would be no such thing as, like, candy, and there would be no such thing as restaurants, and there would be no such thing as Thanksgiving, if, and, and all these holidays, if food was purely only meant for nutritional purposes, you know, um, like this whole food industry that's like probably the biggest industry in the world of like and like chefs that are like chef's kiss this tastes amazing you know it's like it's not bullshit um so I think I think we have to as a society stop labeling like comfort eating as a bad thing because it isn't a bad thing like of course 
if you take it to an extreme and like, but that's, that's the, an extreme and people will immediately say like, oh, so you're saying it's okay to eat a bag of candy every night, but then you'll become obese. And I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. You know, <laughs> it's like people like to tend to think in extremes and they like to do that. But the reality is that life, life isn't an extreme. And I don't love the word balance just because it's just, I know it's so overused. Um, but I think everyone does have their own um, like happy place. And sometimes that's a little more you on the side of like, yeah, like the other week I ate like 10 Oreos in one sitting. And I was like, you know, cause this is really what I want tonight. And the next morning I was like, you know, not that I have to make up for it, but that is something that doesn't make me feel my best. I did not sleep well. Um, but then I'm not going to blame it on the Oreos either because I'm like, I was stressed and maybe that's why I didn't sleep well, you know? So people love to blame stuff on food and blame it really on external sources and really anything but yourself. Um, but I feel like when you can really be honest with yourself and like look into yourself and, and ask like, what is really going on? Like, you don't need to know the answer, but just taking away that blame from external sources is, I think, very key. Oh, I love that you said that. I've never really thought of it that way, but it's so damn true. Like, we we blame it on the food. We demonize the food. Like, the food becomes our issue. The food becomes, like, the thing we have to remove from our life. And we don't, oftentimes, don't take the time to understand, like, what urged me towards that specific food? Is it because it's a food fear and I haven't allowed myself to eat Oreos in 10 years? Is it because I was feeling like anxious or depressed or whatever? And like you said, sometimes we don't always have to like dive deep and look into it. But if this is a reoccurring thing, you know, if you're emotionally eating or not even emotionally, if you're just enjoying a bag of candy every night, it's like at some point you might get to the point where you do want to look at like what's caught, what's, what's urging me to do this. But it's like, I love what you're saying there about not like always demonizing like emotional eating. And I mean, there are just times where I'm not hungry, but I really, I had a shitty day, right? And I just want an ice cream sundae at the end of that day. And I'm not hungry at all, but that's what I want. And so I'm going to have it. And I think like when you can allow yourself to enjoy food again, it actually helps you like work through that like obsessive overeating, um, you know, more emotional side of enjoying food. And um, I think it just like, like you said, there isn't really like balance. Balance is something different to everyone, but I think it sort of helps you find like your own sort of way with it. Like it, it takes you out of that pendulum of extreme. I'm not eating, I'm not allowing myself any candy to I'm a, I'm eating candy every single night. And when you allow yourself to just enjoy candy when you want to, the pendulum sort of evens out. And for everyone listening, I'm making crazy hand motions right now, <laughs> indicating a pendulum. But yeah. My coaching calls, I'm like, so if the graph is at point zero on the X axis, you have to think about it that your body is in negative five and it's get, trying to get back. Um, yeah. I mean, because I'm just also a very visual person. Um, and I really like what you said about like, um, try, like, your body trying to get back to this balance because I think that's also the case in eating disorder recovery or just recovery from like dieting or restrictive eating is that your body is just in this chronic deficit and mental hunger is valid like Mm -hmm. people think they only can eat things if they're physically hungry or like their body physically needs it but mental hunger is just as valid and I actually wrote a blog post which is like probably my most popular post on the 
blog, like viewing from my Google Analytics is um, this post about why, what if I never stop eating, I think it's called. And it was basically my whole story of um, how I turned to like Nutella and peanut butter, like I said earlier at this one point. And I was so, so scared, like I was gonna become obese and I would never be able to stop. But it really is true that if you, like the more you allow yourself, because every day I'd wake up and I'd be like, today's going to be a good day. And I like, I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to have it. But that would just end end up in me like gorging on it again. So after a couple of months, I was like, I really need to reevaluate this because currently my like plan A is not working, you know? Um, so, and as scary as it is, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to allow myself everything and then see what happens because obviously not allowing myself anything was not working. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to say everything I can have. So I like, I remember very clearly this one day I went to the store and I bought everything that like could come in my mind that I could possibly want, like all the things I'd restricted myself of. And I had them there in the kitchen and I ate them all. And I had, I had this period where I, I did gain a lot of weight um, in a short period of time and it was very, very difficult. Um, but it really is true that at some point it will become boring to do that. Like there was, like I did reach this point where I was like, you know, I really do not want any of that food anymore. Um, because the more you show, if you allow yourself it, um, and you really show your body there's no deficit like you're not in a famine you're not in a candy famine like your body won't try and like compensate for that you know um, because what dieting like your body sees dieting as a famine um, so it was the same like this is probably an extreme example but um, like kids out of the holocaust um, like it, they had not had food for a long time like would you tell them like they were emotionally eating if they would like eat an entire chocolate cake? Like, no. And um, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners have heard of the Minnesota starvation experiment before. Um, it was led by- I was going to say, can you like give a bit of insight into it? Yeah. So this um, researcher, Ansel Keys, he, the Minnesota starvation experiment was actually set up to kind of figure out um what would be the best way to refeed people coming out of the Holocaust? And it was, yeah, so it was very interesting because, so he let, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but he let a group of men, like healthy men that had no history of mental issues or disordered eating, he um, reduced their calorie intake um, very significantly. And again, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but that doesn't matter. Um, and he, reduced their calorie intake very significantly and they lost a significant amount of their weight. And what this man noticed was that these men started use, um, showing behaviors and symptoms that strongly overlap with symptoms of eating disorders, eating disorder patients. Uh, these men would hide cookbooks under their beds. They would become obsessed with food. They would chew like up to 30 sticks of gum per day. They would also um, exercise a lot more and walk and pace more, um, which was just very interesting. And this study, even though it had nothing to do with like eating disorder research, really helped actually um, kind of see what the impact is of uh, 
I don't want to say starvation necessarily, but malnourishment on the body. Because I think th that um, when people say malnourishment or starvation, they immediately think like, oh, you have to be underweight. But that's not true. Like you can you can be at a quote unquote healthy BMI or quote unquote overweight and still be malnourished. Um, because your body will adjust and your metabolism will adjust and you might get like quick weight loss in the beginning, but this doesn't necessarily have to bring you down to this like underweight BMI category. Um, but anyways, the, I don't, the Minnesota starvation experiment just was very telling that, oh my God, I totally like just lost my train of thought. What, what, what were we talking about? You're okay. Cause you were talking about how you know, with that experiment happening, it wasn't intended for eating disorder research, but it fundamentally was a huge, you know, it showed so much. And it's like the idea that this, you know, it's sort of like, it's not quite starvation. It's also malnourishment, but it's also like prolonged restriction, even in a sense, yeah, right? Like, I remember, I remember now. Thank you. Um, so yeah. So when these men were like, after the six months of like, not letting them eat more than a certain amount of calories a day, um, these men were then allowed to eat whatever they wanted, um, like unrestricted. And the um, Ansel Keys observed that some of these men would eat upwards of 10,000 calories a day um, after the starvation experiment. And they would, what we call now would quote unquote binge on foods. Um, and that's where I think it's so nuanced to say like, when is binge eating like actually like emotional or like a problem? Because when you're coming out of this period of restriction, your body will try to make up for it because they were in a famine literally. So coming out of that, um, think about it like this way. Like if, you, if you're stuck on a stranded island and you have no food or you have very little food, you are going to want to go somewhere where there is food. Um, so say like uh, there was, you suddenly came to this like dining hall, like on the island, you found a dining hall, but you didn't know for how long that dining hall would be there. Um, you'd probably eat as much as your stomach would allow you to eat because you don't know when it's going to come back, you know? And, and I think that's the case with like this overeating is you don't, your body doesn't know when are we going to have this opportunity again. So if there is like a pack of cookies, you will eat the entire pack because your body's like, well, if this pack of cookies, like if I only eat two and the rest of the pack disappears by tomorrow, like I'm going to regret not having made full use of that pack of cookies, you know? Um, so I think going back to the experiment, it was just very interesting because it, it just goes to show that even like healthy men that had no history of disordered eating or mental issues, like they did that. They would overeat after this period of restriction. And that just goes to show that our biology will guide us. Um, and that also goes into this idea of overshoot in initial recovery, um, a concept that means that when you are like refeeding or getting yourself back to nutrition, you may reach a higher weight initially. And this is also what Stephanie Buttermore, her story illustrates is that your body has this like set point and to gain trust back with your body, you may need to go get to a higher weight first, um, almost to provide like a cushion for your body. Like it's safe, you know, because um, your, your body has no idea, no way to trust you um, that you could go back into a famine tomorrow, you know. 
Um, so I just think Stephanie Button was definitely such an inspiring woman in, in the community, not, not just in eating disorders, but I think also for like weightlifters and like com competitions, because I think that's where she came from. It's like, she was a, a competitor. Um, so that was just amazing that, that, that she d did that and is still doing that, just seeing her story, um, because that takes courage. Um, so that, yeah, I think there's so, so many amazing people in, in our community that are just so inspiring, um, just as, as you and me are. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I just, I just think it's beautiful. <laughs> no, I mean, it truly is. And uh, something that actually came to mind before when you were talking about just like that entire idea of, you know, the prolonged restriction and then the overeating and the sort of like getting back into the groove of things. Like, I know this is something we discussed previously and it's something I wanted to bring up today, which is just like how overwhelm in general can play such a part in, you know, like disordered eating and habits and tendencies. And I think what, you know, something I'm starting to discover is that we all know when there's like the mental and emotional overwhelm, right? Work deadlines, school deadlines, a big move, change in relationships, friendship issues, whatever it is. Like there are so many ways we can be overwhelmed mentally and emotionally, and that can lead us to use food, fitness, whatever it is as a coping mechanism, as a way to feel in control, etc. I think what we sometimes forget and something I'm starting to realize is how our bodies also feel overwhelmed, right? They feel overwhelmed when we are pushing ourselves too far in fitness. They feel the overwhelm when we are having prolonged periods of restriction and all the alarm triggers are going off, like feed me, feed me, I'm hungry. And then nothing happens. And it's like, what's going on? And like, there's, and then our hormones get messed up and then these things get messed up. And like the yeah. hormones, cause like, also it's with like, over exercise, it's like, mm -hmm. what is all? <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, and these are all physical ways our bodies are overwhelmed. And I think that's something for the longest time. I just like, didn't even take into account. Like I knew that emotional and mental overwhelm triggered me to respond to food or fitness in certain ways, but I wasn't yeah. thinking always about how the physical overwhelm did too, about like pushing myself too hard day, day and day again, or not getting enough sleep or like right. all these little things that set our bodies just on like, on just like disaster mode. It like, it, it triggers the alarms. It puts us on high alert. Um, and then it, and then it keeps going, right? Like it manifests into like physical conditions or it just manifests into like more disordered habits or behaviors. Um, and so yeah. that was something too, I kind of wanted to touch on. Cause I know you, I know you understand like the feeling of overwhelm and that's something that we've both like worked through immensely too, and talked about as well. Yeah, and honestly, still, still working through every day. Oh, every day. <laughs> yeah, like people think like, and I'm sure you get messages too of like, how did you do it? How did you recover? And I'm like, um, well, it's kind of like a moving train, you know, it's like, I'm not, I don't like to call myself recovered because it's like, that would imply that it's like past tense, like I'm done, like, you know, but it's like, it's, you don't also say like, have you ever lived? It's like, no, you are living, you know? Um, and you're learning new things every day. Um, so with the overwhelm thing, I think it's more of kind of instead of saying like, I, this is how I, I learn to deal with it. It's like, I'm constantly learning to deal with it and learning new strategies every day. And like, honestly, like it's, I think it's so, so important to um, mentioned that asking for help is okay because for the longest time I was like I don't need a therapist like I went through this whole thing of like Carolina house and my eating disorder recovery like 
I am like coaching other people now. Like if I have a therapist, like if I have a coach, then I'm clearly not good of enough of a coach, you know? Um, but coaches need coaching, like teachers need teaching. Um, it's not like suddenly you reach this like top and you're done, like you're there. Um, so with the overwhelm, I think it's, I've, I've been learning to like navigate it and some days are harder than others. Like some days I will wake up and I will see the clock and realize that I just slept through my alarm that is still going off for one and a half hours. And I'll be like, oh damn, it's like 10 30 AM. And I just like slept through that. And I will be like, this day is off to a horrible start. Like I'm behind on everything. And I will immediately just feel this like tsunami of overwhelm because I'll just like have my whole to-do list and be like, well, now there's no more time for that. And there's no more time for that. And there's no more time for that. Um, but then I think it's so, so important. Um, and this is something we touched on yesterday is like, there is always time. Like, like just because you had that on your to-do list for today, and just because there's maybe less time to, before like 12 p.m. now, because I woke up at 10.30, it's like, then I'll just do it tomorrow, you know? And I think that's been very key for me is that we get this ideal in our head of like, we have to get this done or we have to achieve this, but that's something we created. Like, that's not something that has to get done like unless it's like for a school deadline or something but 99% of the time we are creating our own limits that don't have to be there and for me that's been just huge because when I get overwhelmed I like you don't always notice obviously because when you're in that overwhelmed mode you're just like I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to do um for me what I've noticed has been like a huge game changer um, again, this is just personally for me is getting fresh air makes a world of a difference for me, getting outside, taking a walk, doing something like that will calm me down and that I know will calm me down. And also just journaling and just kind of doing like a brain dump, you know, like getting all the thoughts out. Because when you see and when you have like kind of a visual representation of everything you are overwhelmed by, suddenly it's not overwhelming anymore because you can see it. Because they're like, how I imagine overwhelm is kind of being like washed over by a huge wave, you know, and you can't see the wave because it's going over you. But like, say you were to like pause that wave and just see everything in that wave, then it's not overwhelming anymore because you can see it. Um, so I think getting like into the, this calm mode first, like for me, it's like taking deep breaths or like taking a walk or getting fresh air that first calms me down. And then like writing everything I'm overwhelmed by, whether it be journaling or like taking a voice memo of yourself, if you feel like I don't feel like writing right now, um, just letting it out can be so, so helpful. And again, it's always different because there's some days where I'm like, I'm just overwhelmed and I don't feel like doing shit and I won't do shit. And then the next day I'll be overwhelmed again because I didn't do shit yesterday. Um, but then it's, so key to remember that it's all just like a moment it's a phase like it's not like this is your everything um and I was listening to this meditation once that said just because it you feel like you're stuck in this way of living you're simply used to it um and I thought that was so beautiful because like same with like eating disorder recovery again and just like being anxious like you think that this is you always because you're used to it but it like it isn't um, so I think that's very key.
Oh, I freaking love that. And I mean, just starting from the like beginning of that part where the difference between, you know, recovered. Oh, hold on. I'm going to let this truck go by. <laughs> the difference between recover, saying recovered versus recovering or healed versus healing or anything like that. Like it's, it's so true and so prevalent. Like everything in life is like, I mean, I say this all the time. You guys that listen will are probably sick of it, but change is the only constant in life. Yes. And so, yes. And so oh, it's, yeah. yeah. So it's like recovering, healing, like everything is a work in progress. Like day to day, you have to show up for yourself and for your life. And it's like, you can't just write it off and be like, check Mark, I am done. Like, no, you go to call. If someone goes to college, I mean, unless they pay every damn bill off the day they graduate, they're not done. Like, yeah, you graduate, but you're not done yet. And the same goes with recovery. Like you have moments where you graduate, same goes with healing journeys. You have moments where you graduate, but like the work continues and it leads into other areas, right? Like the college degree then continues into your career or your job or whatever it is. Like that's one analogy. As you all know, listening, I did not go to college. I'm not saying you have to. Yeah. And I did live. Look at us. We're flourishing over here, guys. (laughs) But like the same goes for, I think, in my opinion, recovering and healing. Like it is a day-to-day you know, or every other day, whatever commitment. And some days you will have times. I, someone told this to me once and I loved it. They said that they finally allowed themselves to start taking these days and they called them zero days. And they were days where, you know, those days where it's just like, you don't feel well either mentally or emotionally or physically. And like, we all have those days it's, and then you try to like force yourself through the day and you try to do the work and you try to do the things and you end up getting frustrated or upset or whatever it is. And she was saying that like, she learned over time to just start accepting like once a week that she might have one of these zero weeks. And it's one of those days where like the overwhelm might just be too much for you to analyze, for you to cope, for you to work through. And you might just have to sit in those sucky feelings or emotions or thoughts or whatever it is, because like, that's the other, like sometimes hard to admit truth, right? It's like, we can't we can't always like find the solution or we can't always find like a quick fix or whatever it is. Like sometimes you do have to sit in those like hard days, but the important thing to remember is that like, just because it feels hard, it doesn't mean like, you know, it has to be hard forever, right? Like this is temporary, this too shall pass. So that's just what I was thinking of, like, as you were explaining that. And I just love that like topic of discussion so much, just like the reminder that this is a process. It's something you have to adapt with and evolve with over time. Definitely. And I love um, this, this term of uh, zero days, because that's reminding me of something um, that I use in my coaching a lot is um, when people ask me, like people that struggle with like exercise addiction or over exercising, they have a very hard time with quote unquote rest days, you know, because like rest is bad in this go, go, go society. Um, And I think a very key part of recovery and just life in general is this idea of reframing um, things because it's amazing what one word change like what what a difference that can make so um, like with one girl I worked on reframing and renaming um, rest days and calling them recovery days Um, and all of a sudden she told me that it made it so much easier to like not do a workout or something because she was like recovering, like her muscles were rebuilding, like she was, because recovery sounds like active and rest sounds passive. Um, And just us as humans have, I think, a very hard time with things that are passive and things that are like still. Um, But recovery, because it sounds active, you're almost like 
tricking your brain into thinking you're still doing something while you're actually still taking that rest day. Um, so I, I just thought that was a very good example about how just reframing things and giving things a different name or connotation just can make a world of a difference. Like, cause I could call like one of these days where I wake up late or I sleep in like, oh, this day is messed up. Like, or I could say like, this is, this is an opportunity for growth, like to, to notice and to become aware, like, well, the fact that I just slept through my alarm while it's still going off means I'm very, very tired. Like, oh, maybe this is a time to step back and like, look at what, what have I been doing in my life? That's not been giving me the rest I need, you know? Um, so I was also, because we have another lockdown here um, in the Netherlands since Monday, um, a guy on a podcast said, you, right now you can choose to be a creator or you can choose to be a victim. And I think that quote just is amazing, like all across the board for like everything we're talking about right now is like when things don't go the way you ideally wanted them to go or um, you feel overwhelmed, like you can choose, like, do I, am, am I gonna be creative right now? And like, what, what resources do I have now? Like, what am I going to create with this? Or am I just going to be choose to be a victim and be like, I'm overwhelmed. I'm giving up. I'm throwing my hands in the air. Like I can't do anything because reality is like, as much as we probably want to do that sometimes, like we can't, like we are not going to suddenly like fall and like not have to do anything. Like life goes on. We need to eat. We need to drink. We need to sleep. We need to move. Um, so I think it's just, finding what works for you in each and every moment that like allows you to feel like you can be there um that that's really what's very important oh I love that and I never I never heard of that create like you can create or you can be the victim and I think that just ties so perfectly into everything we were saying today right like there's so much like we all have so much internalized like power empowerment and we just don't even realize it and I think these things that we struggle with, that we deal with, they can really like dampen that internal fire, that spark we all have. But like quite literally, when you start to take a step towards recovery or healing or just like working through things, getting yourself help, whatever it is, like that is the epitome of like self-empowerment. Like you're lighting that mark, like that thing up again, like you're creating that like life for yourself, right? You're, you're stepping out of the victimhood and you're stepping into like the creative side, creating your own life. So I absolutely love that. And I guess just sort of like to wrap things up here, um, is there like a mantra or a saying, you've had so many great quotes this episode. I freaking love it. <laughs> I'm like thinking, which one will I use for the intro? Um, but is there any like final like mantra or quote that you just want to share like real quick with people that, you know, maybe, th- maybe it resonates with someone who really needs it today. And it's something that helps you on the day to day. Yeah. So I think that something that has been very important for me and like really been my mantra for a long time now has been whenever you think you can't do something is to take a step back and realize that you're already doing it like like I, I I made a wheels about this the other day but it was like I for a long time it was like I can't do this like I can't run my own business and just all these limiting beliefs we have we we believe them um, but when you really zoom out and like look at everything you've done and ev- how far you've come, you realize that that thing you're saying you can't do, that you're probably already doing it. Um, so I think that's my main my main message that I want to give your listeners is that just I know like believe in yourself. It's so cheesy, you know, but 
um, another way to like reframe that is to just say like, look at look at what you've already done before saying that you can't do something. Mm-hmm. No, and I mean, I know a lot of these like quotes and stuff we share, they sound cliche or cheesy, but I mean, there's a reason they're so popular because they're usually true. They usually have a bit of truth to them. Um, so I love that. And for anyone that's just resonating with this, that wants to learn more about you, wants to follow along, um, just because I, I feel like this, I'm just so happy we got to talk because this just shows like so many sides to you. So where can people find you, connect, learn more, follow along? Of course. Um, so I'm on Instagram at live label free. So that's L I B label free. Um, my website. So there I have all my blogs and like more elaborative recipes is livelabelfree.com. And I'm now also on YouTube at live label free as well. <laughs> yeah. Consistency. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>